The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Well, I had Dave Cates read Revelation 13, 1 through 10, but we're not studying Revelation 13, 1 through 10, not yet. Uh, it's in my mind, but I want to do some background work in other texts of Scripture this week and next week to make what you just heard in Revelation 13 a little clearer. Uh, end time teaching is fascinating to many people. Perhaps there are a few theological topics, scriptural topics that so inflame the imagination and engage the mind as the teaching of the end of the world, end time teaching. And as I've said many times as we're walking through the prophecies in the book of Isaiah and how God claims that unlike all the idols of the world, he knows the future. He's the only one that does. And he's able to declare the end from the beginning. No one else can do this. We saw this again and again in the prophecies of Isaiah and how God in Isaiah 46.10 says, I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Isaiah 46.10. Now those prophecies, most of the prophecies of Isaiah, not all of them, but most of them focus on the first coming of Christ. We saw the details, incredible details. First of all, the overarching uh, flow and direction and purpose of of Jesus' life laid out in the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, especially Isaiah. First coming, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, lived a sinless life, did signs and wonders, healed the sick, raised the dead, spoke in parables. All of these things were predicted, including his genealogy, that he would be born a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, a son of David, all of these things predicted. And then even tiny details, especially focused on Jesus' death on the cross, how he would be lifted up and his hands and his feet would be pierced. And by his blood he would atone for sins as all the animal sacrificial system pointed to blood atonement. And how he would drink gall at his death. And so there's a little jar of wine vinegar and gall right there at the foot of the cross. Tiny details. And that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And that he would be raised from the dead on the third day. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name to the ends of the earth. These things are predicted. The first coming. But the question we have to ask is what about the second coming? What about the end of the world? Our details predicted that lead up to the end of the world. And I would say that, yes, absolutely, we have details given us of the future in the Bible. And so Christianity, unique among all the religions of the world, makes specific predictions, specific prophecies, and has a track record of prophecies being fulfilled, but now there's still yet more to come. Many of those end-time prophecies are found in this book that we've been studying, the book of Revelation. Many of them, but not all of them. And this elaborate system of truth is very difficult to put together. I have an image of a puzzle that uh, my daughter Daphne just got from my sister for her birthday. 
And uh, it's a puzzle of Big Ben, the, the clock, the tower in England. But unlike a two-dimensional puzzle, which is just a photo of Big Ben, this one's three-dimensional. So we have to actually erect this tower. And I'm thinking we have no hope. Except that there are numbers on the back of these plastic pieces. So I, I, we haven't really begun yet. We started and then ran out of time, thank goodness. Um, because I, I, I don't really have it all figured out what we're going to do. I know we probably need a big piece of plywood. We need a place where it's not going to be disturbed. And we need to, you know, roll up our sleeves and work on it. So this is, this is complicated. Well, I look at eschatology that way. End time teaching. You get a little from here, a little from there. Something from Second Thessalonians. Some things going over from Matthew 24. Things in the Old Testament. Things in various places. First John 2. And we're trying to put together a system, an orderly system of truth. And you may say, why are we doing that? Or how is this relevant to my life? Well, I don't know how to answer that question. I, I don't know how to say how understanding the beast from the sea and the, the future Antichrist and, and all that will affect your life today. But it will affect it in some ways. Eschatology, end time teaching, has the power to shape the way you look at your everyday life. To realize we are moving to a definite end. And that end has been thought out and predicted by the mind of God. And it's a glorious end. But we're also learning as we go through the book of Revelation, it's, a, it's an end full of suffering and pain and difficulty. And Jesus wants to tell us about ahead of time so we'll be ready. He says, behold, I have told you ahead of time. And as you know ahead of time, you'll be ready for what's coming. And even though you walk out the doors today and you'll look around and you'll say what is said that people will say in 2 Peter 2, where is this coming? That he promised. Everything goes on just as it has since the beginning. And in so doing, if anyone says that, they'll be fulfilling prophecy. Because that's exactly what Peter said people would say. But you're able to look beyond the immediate circumstances and say, you know, we're heading somewhere. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. We're not looking at a circular, circular cyclical view of history. We're talking a linear view and we're going somewhere. And that place is glorious. We're going to a glorious end. But there's going to be, as Jesus says in Matthew 24, we're going to look at that today, birth pains before the end. And it's good to know it. It's good to know that we've got some suffering to go through. Now, I know that eschatology is incredibly popular. I mean, the Left Behind series... The most recent publishing data I could find, 65 million books have been sold. Several of the 16 volumes in Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins' series, Left Behind, which is about eschatology, etc., went to number one on the New York Times bestseller list, which is a big achievement in, publish in publishing. It's hard to do. But it's been going on a long time. Some of you older Christians remember Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth, which was that generation's version of the same thing. Took current events, wove them together, especially uh, the Cold War, Soviet Union issues and all of that. And zeroed in on the relatively recent new establishment of the Jewish nation in Palestine. And made a prediction that within one generation from the Jews being reestablished in 1948 in Palestine, the end would come. Some people calculated one generation as 40 years. So there were lots of predictions in 1988. Some of you will remember 88 reasons the Lord will return in 88, things like that. And here we are. But we should not think that the methodology is intrinsically flawed. Actually, I think it's biblical. To take scripture and to look at current events and combine them. 
What I'm saying is the establishment of the Jews in Palestine was only one, perhaps, indicator. There are dozens and dozens of others that need to also be happening. So we're going to talk about that and the, the lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, then you know. You're not going to be wondering. You will know. But the only way you're going to know is if you study the Bible. It's not anything you're going to read in the newspaper. By studying scripture. And my job as a teacher of the word of God is to try to make these things clear. Now, some have said about preaching, what is it? A mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. We're not the kind of church that does the fog machine. Have you noticed that? That's a bad thing. The laser light fog machine thing, that's not us. Still less do we want to do it from the pulpit. So few sermons in my recent uh, time have so kind of confused me in terms of methodology. So if you look at your outline today, you can kind of forget some of it anyway. I'm going to take the first section and I'm going to put it to next week's sermon. In that, I make a case for how one generation, the final generation, will actually know the exact number of days till the Lord returns. I'm going to make a case. Now, you're going to think I'm heretical. I'm not saying that. I'm not. But I, I think I have a good case for saying that final generation will be able to count the days. We'll get to that. But I want to go through the book of Daniel, all of that, next week. The clearest indication of that to me is at the end of the book of Daniel. So we'll talk about that. So set that aside. Instead, what I want to do is I want to go back into Matthew 24, and I want to give you the background. Let me just tell you where we're at. For those of you that have not been following our study, we're studying through the book of Revelation. And Revelation unveils things that we would not have any other way of knowing. Things about the past, invisible things from the past, things about the present, invisible things in the present, and yes, things about the future. It even openly says, I will show you what must take place after this. So it talks about the future, no doubt about it. And there are details in that. Now, we have just finished a, a very extraordinary, amazing chapter, Revelation 12, in which the activities of a monstrous red dragon, it's uh, described, if, if you were to look there, you, I know you're in Matthew 20, 24 and stay there, but in Revelation 12, 3, it says, another sign appeared in the heavens, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. It's no accident that that sounds just like the beast from the sea that David just read about. We'll get to all that when I return to Revelation in a couple, uh, a couple of sermons. But this red dragon, we know from Revelation 12, 9, there's no doubt about it. Apocalyptic literature is very hard to interpret. It's symbolic language. But this is, we're told what this red dragon or who this red dragon is. In verse 9 of Revelation 12, it says, The great dragon was hurled down from the heavens to the earth. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled down and all his angels with him. So that's who the red dragon is. God wants us to know who the red dragon is, Satan, how powerful he is, how incredibly powerful he is so that we do not underestimate him. We're aware of his schemes. We're aware of his power. There is a vast conspiracy, an evil conspiracy in the world. There is one. It's biblical. Satan is running it. And for any Bible-reading Christian, we're not surprised that there is a, a, a method to the evil and the wickedness that's going on. And we need to be able to see behind current events to a, a demonic activity. The Bible teaches it. But we also need, on the other side, to realize Satan is depicted again and again as a defeated foe. A frustrated, thwarted enemy. 
that God is so much more powerful than Satan. They're not equal. It's not a dualistic religion like yin and yang or something like that. Not at all. God, the good God of the universe, is infinitely more powerful than evil. And so Satan is thwarted in his effort to kill Jesus before his time. He's thwarted in his effort to take over heaven with his armies. He's thwarted again and again in his effort to kill the woman and her children. Though he tries and he brings much suffering in the world. And the, the, the section ends with the dragon standing on the shore of the sea. And then in chapter 13, up out of the sea comes a beast. And there's no doubt that the imagery is meant to link into Daniel chapter 7. So at any rate, I would want to go back to Daniel 7 and try to give some illustrations there. But the clearest unfolding of these events, other than the book of Revelation, is in Matthew 24. And I want to just do some work in Matthew 24. So look there, if you would, in Matthew 24. And let's try to understand lessons about the end time from Jesus. My desire is to make these things clear, that you would be ready. I want to be a good pastor to you. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul said to the Thessalonian church that the end wouldn't come until the man of sin appeared, who we know is the Antichrist, the man doomed to destruction. He said, don't you remember that when I was with you, I kept telling you about these things? Stop right there. For me, that's pastoral methodology. Tell your people about the future. Tell your people what the Bible says is going to come on us. Get them ready. Get your youth ready. Get your children ready. Get them ready to get their children ready. Because this information is going to be vital to their spiritual survival. All right, so Matthew 24 is sometimes called the little apocalypse. It's Jesus' teaching about the end times. And I want to set it in its own context. Jesus has just finished in Matthew 23 saying a sevenfold woe on the spiritual leaders of Israel, the scribes and Pharisees, seven times. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Seven times he exposes the spiritual leaders who sit in Moses' seat to the, to the people that they, would be, that they would understand that they are hypocrites. They're whitewashed tombs. They are not what they appear to be. And the, the greatest sin they have committed is by not believing in Jesus, not recognizing in Jesus the coming of the Lord. That Jesus is God in the flesh, that he is the Messiah, the Son of David. They didn't recognize, they rejected him. This was predicted very plainly in Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed our message? Questioning whether Israel would believe in Jesus Isaiah 53.3 says he was despised and rejected by men. We esteemed him not. We didn't esteem him. Rejected. And then John 1.11 says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. So this was all predicted, the rejection of the Jews. But Jesus pronounces a prophetic word of judgment seven times. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. He says that. Then he expresses grief over Jerusalem. Matthew 23 says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not, you were not willing. Behold... Your house is left to you desolate. That means empty, vacuous. 
That word desolate. Very important word. For, tell me about the desolation. What do you mean it's desolate? You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then he walked out of the temple. Incredibly important, impactful moment. The essence of the desolation of the house is Jesus leaving. Just like Ezekiel 10, the glory, the Shekinah, or the dwelling glory of God moved out of the temple and went out. So also Jesus walking out of the temple. He linked it linguistically. Your house has left you desolate, for you will not see me again. Me going out, that's your desolation, your emptiness. Well, as he walks out, the disciples come up to him. Have you ever noticed that the disciples just aren't on message I mean, it's really important at the end, after the day of Pentecost and the Spirit comes on them, that they're on message. That's really important. But at this point, they just don't get it. And so they come up to Jesus and they say, look, Master, look at these massive stones of the temple. Big stones, Mark 13. Doesn't describe the size of the stones there, but look at the magnificent, look at all of these buildings Jesus says in Matthew 24, 2, do you see all these things? I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Again, that's prophecy. That's a prediction of the destruction of the temple of the Jews. The Jews obviously found this troubling. The disciples did. The apostles did. So they came to Jesus privately on the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives overlooks Jerusalem. And so they come to him private and and they want to ask him the question. They don't understand his vision of eschatology. They don't know why the temple would be destroyed. Aren't they going to have the temple forever and ever? Won't they have animal sacrifice forever and ever? They didn't understand. Jesus was about to abolish forever animal sacrifice by his own death. So the temple wouldn't be needed anymore, but they don't understand. And so they don't get it. And they come to Jesus and they ask a three-part question. Verse 3, Matthew 24, 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives... The disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? What's the this? Uh, The destruction of the temple. When will the destruction of the temple happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now to them it's all one thing. The destruction of the temple and the coming of Jesus and the end of the age is all one thing. One of the complexities of Matthew 24 is saying, as I read this, am I thinking about the destruction of the physical temple that Jesus just physically left? And we know in history that happened in AD 70, about 40 years later, by the Romans. Is Jesus describing the Roman destruction of the temple at that time? Or something even beyond that yet to come? What is he talking about? And so to unravel his statements in Matthew 24, that's complicated. It's hard to know. But... In my opinion, I actually think he's talking about both. I think he's talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70 at one level as a dress rehearsal for the big one that's yet to come. And so if you look at verse 37, there's a key principle, eschatological principle that I teach again and again. Uh, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So I just take this phrase, as it was, so it will be. What that means is that they're going to be what we call dress rehearsals of eschatological events again and again in history. They'll happen again and again. But the big one's yet to come. 
Probably the clearest of this has to do with the Antichrist. The clearest and most relevant. The Antichrist. The word Antichrist, anti means substitute Christ. Instead of Christ, that's what the word means. The, the only one that uses that term is John, the Apostle John in 1 John and, and 2 John. Spirit of the Antichrist, etc. But the teaching of the Antichrist is found in Daniel 7, in Daniel 11, in 2 Thessalonians 2. It's found in many places, just different language used for this individual, the beast that we're about to study in Revelation 13. 1 John 2.18 says this. This is a very an interesting statement. Remember the principle I'm giving you. As it was, so it will be. 1 John 2.18. You have heard that Antichrist is coming. And even now, many Antichrists have come. So you reverse that. First, many Antichrists will come. And then the one final Antichrist will come. John doesn't say you've heard that Antichrist is coming. But he's not. All we have is a bunch of false teachers and, and political leaders. And then no one version at the end. He doesn't say that. He says that actually he is coming. But before that we're going to get many other antichrists. Jesus says the same. Look at verse 4 and 5. Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying I am the Christ and will deceive many. They're going to perform signs and wonders and do all of these kinds of things. To deceive people and draw them away. So what do I mean by many antichrists have come? Well, the antichrist, as we're going to study in Revelation 13, has two aspects. A political slash military slash police state aspect, governmental aspect. Force, military force, governmental force, plus a religious aspect of false religion. So there are some military leaders who use their powerful governmental position to persecute the church. That's the spirit of Antichrist. And then there are other religious leaders who start cults that are self-referential. So you worship them and follow their lead, their cult leaders. That's also Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist. But there are lots of those, big and small. There are some small Antichrists you don't even know about because they're not that successful. They're big fish in a small pond. They dominate a small flock of people and extort them and take advantage of them materially and sexually and all that. And they assault. And we don't know much about them because they're not that famous. But then they're the really big ones that start world religions. They're big successful antichrist. All of that is going to get consolidated in the end into one person. In the same way you have wicked leaders like Hitler or Stalin or Mao or others that use their power to crush the church. But there will be one in the end who will have far more power than any of them ever had. And he will demand to be worshipped. So dress rehearsals. As there was, so there will be. And in Matthew, uh, in these verses, then Jesus goes on beyond that to talk about general sufferings that happen in every, every generation. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes in various places. That's just general language. He even uses general type language. Various wars, rumors of wars that actually never even happen. Famines, plural. Earthquakes, plural. We could add hurricanes, plural. Natural disasters, all of these kinds of things. They'll, they'll keep happening. You'll hear about that. All these are just the beginning of birth pains, Jesus says. Worse birth pains come later. We're reading about it in the book of Revelation. And there will be specific suffering for the people of God. There will be 
tribulation, so to speak, or trials all the way through. You'll be betrayed and hated and persecuted by various peoples in various places. This is going to go on. It's been going on. But that's just dress rehearsal. The worst is yet to come. And then the one overarching task in verse 14. Matthew 24, 14. It says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. In the days before the flood, what was Noah doing? Building an ark. A place of safety. Where you could run, you could flee to the ark and get out of the flood that's coming. We're building an ark too, but it's spiritual. It's a church, the universal church. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to preach this gospel as a testimony to all nations. Everyone's going to hear about this gospel. That's the work we're doing. And then the end will come. All right, that's all general signs. Now let's get to the specific signs that have to do with the end of the world. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Look at verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination of desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to get anything out of his house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath. So let me just sum all that up. When you see the abomination of desolation that Daniel talked about, run for your lives. If you're living in Judea and Jerusalem, run. Well, all right. Are we talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70? Or are we talking about something at the end of the world? I'm going to say both. Both. If you are a Christian Jew living in Jerusalem in 70 AD and you start seeing the destruction of the temple, then run. That's simple. And if you look at, you look at it, it's like run, run as fast as you can. If you're in Judea, go as fast as you can. There's a flight. There's a terror. The, the Greek word for flight in verse 20 is fuge, from which we get fugitive or refugee. You're hoping that it won't be winter so that the weather will slow you down. You're hoping you're not pregnant so that your physical condition will slow you down. It's just run for your life. You don't have time to go back to get a cloak. You don't have time to go down out of the roof, off the roof, the flat roof there in Palestine, down. You've got to run. Well, Jesus doesn't really say what you're running from. What's making you run for your life? Well, Revelation 12 tells you what you're going to run for. You're running from the devil. You're running from the red dragon. Revelation 13 tells you what you're running from at the human level. You're running from the beast from the sea and his forces. That's what you're running from. So in Revelation 12, verse 6, it says, The woman, woman fled into the desert... To a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. Uh, the sermon this morning in the treehouse started with the 1260 days. I said, We're not ready for that. Let's get to that later. But there's a set amount of time. The woman's gonna be protected in the desert for 1260 days. 
And again, Revelation 12, 13, and 14. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time. We'll get to that next week, God willing. Out of the serpent's reach. So the human instrumentality of your flight, of the flight, will be the beast from the sea or the abyss. Now, I've already jumped to the end times. I've already jumped to the abomination of desolation and all that. This is not easy. Jesus says in verse 15, read the book of Daniel. And then he urges you, let the reader understand. So do you have wisdom? Do you have understanding to get what Daniel's saying? That's what he's, he's getting at here. You need to read Daniel. You don't just need to read Daniel, though. You have to look at current events. It's not just in the text of Scripture. We're going to look around and we're going to wait and we're going to try to see is the abomination of desolation, whatever that is, standing where it ought not to be? If so, then run. So, or that's when the clock starts, 1260 days. So you have to combine reading of Scripture and current events to some degree. We're going to run for our lives. As it says in Revelation 13, verse 1, the dragon stood on the shore of the sea And I saw the beast coming up out of the sea, and he had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. And the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. It's three and a half years. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. That's why you're running for your lives, because many lives are going to be forfeit. So what is this abomination of desolation? What is it? We're going to look at the book of Daniel next week. I'll just give you a foretaste. The abomination of desolation is mentioned three times in Daniel, especially in Daniel 9.27. In the middle of the 70 weeks teaching, don't go over there, but in the middle of this complex 70 week teaching about chronology. There comes this verse, he, talk about who the he is, will confirm a covenant with many for one seven or one week. In the middle of the seven, half of seven is three and a half, talk about that next week. In the middle of the seven, he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering. And the NIV gives us this, and on a wing of the temple, the word temple isn't there, it's a very complex phrase, but on the wing of something, he will set up, clear Hebrew word, he will erect or build an abomination of desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. It's also mentioned in Daniel eleven thirty one, speaking of a figure, a, a Greek king at that point, but he's a foretaste. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress. No doubt about it, talking about the temple there. And abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination of desolation. There it is. And then again in Daniel 12, 11, from the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. You're like, wait, wait, that's not 1,260. Next week. Wait, I told you, it's a big puzzle. But there it is three times. What is it? What are we talking about? Well, it's something set up in a place where sacrifice is offered. In one case in 1131, Daniel 1131, a temple. And in the Old Testament, in prophetic language, again and again, the word abomination 
refers to idols. It's a very common term for an idol. Something that's utterly repulsive to God, disgusting to God. So it's an idol that is connected to desolation. The NIV and other translations go abomination that causes desolation. I prefer to just say what the, what the actual text says. Abomination of desolation. What do I mean by that? Desolation is emptiness. When there is an emptiness, my dad used to say that. He was a real technological guy. Like I got my geekiness. Like they say apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I'm like a techno geek guy. And I, my dad used to say nature abhors a vacuum. If there's a vacuum, something's going to go flooding in. Well, Jesus, in Matthew 12, was talking about his exorcism ministry. And he says, when an evil spirit goes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and doesn't find it. Then it goes back to the original house that it left and finds it unoccupied, empty, desolate. And then it takes seven other demons and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than it was at the beginning. Or as we know in the KJV, the last is worse than the first. It's worse after Jesus leaves. After Jesus dies and ascends to heaven, Israel will be worse. Demons are going to come flooding back in. And there's this emptiness, this desolation, and it floods in. That's, I think, eventually led to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. But at that time, in A.D. 70, there was no idol set up that everyone came and worshipped. That actually didn't happen. Frankly, Titus, the Roman general who destroyed it, didn't want the temple burned, Josephus tells us. He tried to put the fire out. He wanted it saved. And so if you're going to say it's just Gentiles in the Holy of Holies, that just doesn't line up with the level of significance of the abomination of desolation. That's just the destruction of the temple. That's all. No, there's a greater desecration yet to come. What would it be? Well, 2 Thessalonians 2, the Apostle Paul says in verse 4, the man of sin that's coming will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God as worship or as worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Now, that's not apocalyptic. That's just a New Testament epistle the Apostle Paul is making a prediction of the future. The end will come after that occurs. So there has to be some temple called God's temple that this individual is going to set himself up in. Now, if I can say plainly, this is where I part company with dispensational premillennialists and other folks like this. Some of you know what I'm talking about, some don't. But those of you that do, there is a separate track for the church in Israel in that scheme, that theological scheme, in which God in some way is delighted with the reestablishment of the animal sacrificial system for the Jewish nation in particular. I feel like I want to vomit when I hear that. It's like, have you not read the book of Hebrews? That the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin? That Jesus abolished or put an end to animal sacrifice because when he died, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom? The animal sacrificial system is finished forever as a God-blessed way to approach God. He's not going to accept the blood of animals ever again. It's done. It's an insult to his son. But it doesn't mean it won't happen. It doesn't mean that the unbelieving Jewish nation doesn't want a physical temple rebuilt. Have you not seen all the Jews that go to Jerusalem and wail at the wall? What are they praying for? What do they want? The temple to be rebuilt. There's a problem. There's a mosque there. 
seems to me the Antichrist will have the ability to clear away that problem. We can hardly even imagine how that is even possible. But remember, we're heading toward one world religion. And that one world religion will focus on him. And a penultimate stepping stone is, I think, the reestablishment of the Jewish animal sacrificial system. And then in the middle of it, he will stop it and focus everything on himself. To me, that's the abomination of desolation. And Revelation 13 speaks of an idol that the false prophet sets up that everyone's supposed to worship. Why not there? So to me, that's the abomination of desolation. When you see something like that, run for your life. That's what he's saying. And at that time, in verse 21 and 22, there will be great distress, a great tribulation. It's uh, translated in King King James Version. Unequal from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. That's language that goes far beyond anything that the Roman soldiers did in 70 AD. Trouble unequal from the beginning of the world and never equaled again? No. No, if you want to understand trouble that's never been seen on planet Earth, read the book of Revelation. Read about a third of the oceans turning to blood and a third of the fish dying. Read about a third of the plants and trees burning up. A third of the fresh water undrinkable. That's stuff that's never been seen in in history. When you see those kinds of things happen, then you know you're reaching the end. And after that, Christ returns. Look at verse 27, Matthew 24, 27. As lightning that comes from the east is visible even to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. That's what we're talking about. The Son of Man didn't come in 70 AD. He hasn't come yet. But these events are leading up to the second coming of Christ. And it's going to be so obvious and it's going to be so glorious. Like lightning flashing across the sky. No faith needed. The time of faith will be over. So also the time of salvation. Faith is gone at that point, the second coming of Christ. And then Matthew 24, 29 through 31, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Book of Revelation. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels... With a loud trumpet call, and they will gather the elect from one end of the heavens to the other. From one end of the heavens to the other, he will gather all the elect into one place. Now, Jesus said, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it or he is near right at the door. So we're supposed to look at current events. Have you noticed we're heading toward fall? Have you noticed that the leaves are getting a little bit lighter, not so green? The ones in my yard are getting, getting a little bit lighter. It's a beautiful time, but I know where we're heading. They're all going to come down and dump on my lawn. And I'm going to get out that blower and I'm going to put in dozens and dozens of hours, me and my family, and we're going to move those leaves. At least we don't have to bag them, thank God. Some of you have to bag your leaves and put it out at the, at the uh, sidewalk. But I can tell that fall is coming. A little bit cooler, days are shorter, right? 
Leaves are changing. I can tell. Jesus is saying the same thing. You're not wondering, gee, I don't know if spring is coming. You know. And no, the Jews being reestablished in 1948, that one debatable indicator, that one thing, is not enough. There's got to be many, many more signs. You're not going to wonder. You're going to know. Now, what should we do about all this? Jesus at the end of Matthew 24 says, be ready, be working hard, be ready at any moment. In verse 44, he says, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Verse 45, 46, it says, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for those servants whose the master finds them so doing or doing the right thing when he returns. So, be busy building the ark. That's what we're doing. We're building an ark, not a physical ark. But by preaching the gospel, we're getting people ready to find a place of refuge when the judgment comes. The church needs to do its work. Spiritual gifts need to do their work. People with the gift of hospitality tonight, home fellowship, offer hospitality. Praise God. You teachers teach. Preachers preach. Those with the gift of administration, do it. Those with the gift of help, do it. Let's do our work to the end that the elect can be saved and then built up in their faith. And the church can be strengthened until the Lord returns. That's what we're supposed to do. It's not for us to know right now the days or times the Father set by his own authority. Now next week I'm going to say, yes, but it will be for one generation. We'll get there, get there. But for us, we don't see these things. Our job is to build the ark. And to get ready for the second coming. Now next week we're going to look at the book of Daniel. We're going to look at Daniel 7, the beast from the sea and the little horn. We're going to look at Daniel 9, the 70 weeks. We're going to look at Daniel... 11, many antichrists, and one final antichrist, and then Daniel 12, the final generation and the counting of the days. So we'll do that next time. Application. First and greatest application always is run to Christ. While you have time, God sent his son as the savior for the world. There is no other. There is no other way that our sins can be cleansed but the blood of Jesus. While you have time, flee to Christ. Now, we don't know the exact time, Jesus said, of the end right now. Neither do you know the exact time of your end, do you? Do you know when you're going to die? Has the Lord promised you tomorrow? Actually, you don't know if you'll even be alive tomorrow. While you have time, flee to Christ. You don't need to do any good works for the forgiveness of your sins. Just believe in Jesus. Take all of your sins and cast them on him and say, Thank you, Jesus, that you died under the wrath of God, under the law of God for my sins. If you're already converted, we're told at the end of Matthew 24 and in Matthew 25, be ready, be ready, be active, be busy doing the Lord's work, be focused on what he's called you to do, and be aware of the kind of suffering that we have yet to go through. Jesus said these are just the beginning of birth pains. It's going to ramp up greatly. So be willing to suffer for the gospel. Be willing to suffer now here in America to share the gospel with a co-worker or a fellow student or a total stranger. Be willing to suffer their snarling up face and their rudeness and they're walking away. That's all they're going to do at worst. Well, they might fire you uh, if, you, if they happen to be your boss. And there are ways to do it, but let's be faithful to share the gospel. Let's be praying that the Lord would come and his kingdom would come. And let's be ready. That's what God's called on us to do. Close with me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the time we've had to study. We thank you for the complexity and beauty of your word. 
We know it is not easy to put all of these things together, but Lord, help us to be clear, help us to understand what's coming and to be ready. Help us to realize we're surrounded by people who don't believe the Bible at all. Some people don't e- say they don't even believe in an invisible spiritual world. They don't believe in life after death. They think you know, just they're going to just cease to exist when they die. They don't know that after death comes judgment. God, I pray that you'd help us to be faithful to share. Help us to be faithful to do our good works, to encourage one another and build each other up in the body. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.